I don't think I've talked about Columbine on here for about a month. That's too long. It's too long to go without talking about Columbine. I was thinking about how... Well, for one, and before I even get to what I want to talk about, how... What's so interesting about Columbine is that I don't necessarily remember all the names of the victims. There's the big ones. I don't know why they're the big ones. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why some Columbine victims are more famous than others. But there are some that you just have burned in your head, like Rachel Scott. I think she's for you know with her it was she was the first victim. I think I think she was the first person who got killed. And then just everything that went along with her, you know, she had a personality. She had, I don't know, I think it was easier to kind of be like, oh, this was an individual. But even that said, like if I saw the name of a Columbine victim, I would immediately go, oh, that's one of the, that's one of the Columbine victims. Even if it's a name, I can't just recall off the top of my head. And like thinking about it now, I, I can remember a lot more of them than I even realized. And I never have read about the victims. Like every once in a blue moon, I'll read about Columbine. I talk about it more than I read about it. But every once in a while, I'll uh, read about Columbine. And I don't read about the victims, though. Even though everybody in the media, or even though everybody says, like, oh, the media talks too much about uh, the killers when they should be talking about the victims. Instead of talking about the killers, let's talk about the victims here. You know, people say that, and I understand their intention. I understand people's intention. Like, the idea is that you're fueling this really damaged ego out of control when you talk about the killer, and you're appealing to other people like that. And I think there's truth to that. It's just not the whole truth. And the other part of the truth is that you just can't avoid talking about the killer. Because they're the most, unfortunately... A lot of people wouldn't like the way that, wouldn't like the way this sounds, but the killer is the most interesting one. Not because, and it's different than them being compelling. It's different than them being an interesting individual. But by the very definition, the most objective definition of the word interesting, the killers are the most interesting person involved because they're the one who did it. They're the one who took this drastic measure to inflict their, their own suffering on the world. How would they not be the most interesting one? But yeah, for that reason, like, you know, when people say like, oh, you got to stop talking about the killer, you got to talk about the victim. You got to talk about victim. Again, I, I know the, the intention behind that makes some sense. Like, it, there is a way that you could apply that. Like, there is a way that you could deal with the killer's identity in a way that doesn't glorify them or unnecessarily denigrate them. Because that's a side of this, too, where I don't know if this is cultural, I don't know if this is human-wide, worldwide, but in America, people have this need to kind of tell you what you should think about someone. Oh, the guys who committed Columbine, you know they're cowards and bad guys. Oh, did you know those guys are just pieces of shit? Oh, that piece of shit. 
But you know, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, that piece of shit. Did you know he's a piece of shit? You know, people just need to to add that. And my my take is always like, I know Jeffrey Dahmer's a bad guy. I know the Columbine shooters are bad guys. They cross the line. Like some people, you look at them, oh, maybe a good guy who did a bad thing. But when you cross a certain line, like nothing wrong with calling that person a bad guy. Nothing wrong with seeing Jeffrey Dahmer or the Columbine shooters as just villains. But what I'm talking about here is it's not about viewing them that way. It's the way of performatively going like, yeah, the Columbine killers, they, they were real pieces of shit. Did you know that? It's virtue signaling. Like that term has become popular in politics. In particular, people who broadcast far left views that everybody they're talking to already agrees with. But the idea is they're signaling to them, I have virtuous views on this too. You're not doing it to actually further that view. You're doing it to let other people know you have that view and that's a good thing. Therefore, you're good. You're virtuous. But it's not just this new political thing. Like That's obviously something people have always done. When a new term like that comes out, people are like, oh, oh it's a bunch of lib- libs virtue signaling. Yeah, there are a lot of libs virtue signaling, 100%. But that's not new. Like that human beings doing that in an endless number of different ways isn't new. You know, and everybody does it. But what I was going to get at though is like when, when someone feels the need to like tell you a bad guy is bad. Especially when they swear when they do it. I don't know. There's something especially ugly when someone talks that way. Columbine shooters with a couple of fucking pieces of shit, you know. People people do that a lot. Like, if you pay attention, people do that a lot. They swear, and that means they're serious. When you swear when you talk about bad guys, that means you really believe it. But that's what you're trying to do is tell people, I really, I, I know right from wrong, and I'm good. I'm right. But my thing has always been, like, it's implied. Like, you can talk about the facts. Jeffy, Jeffy Dahmer. Jeffy. Jeffy Dahmer. You know, when, when Jeffy Dahmer... Um, I'm just distracting myself with that one. Uh, when, Je- when Jeffy... I'm just going to call him Jeffy. I'm going to do it because people talk about this shit all the time. Like, people talk about serial, killer, serial killers all the time now. It's just a normal thing that you talk about all the time. It's not just that one person you you met in junior high and you're like, oh yeah, I read this book about Jeffy Dahmer. But no, you meet you, people talk about serial killers all the time. So there's probably going to be a lot of opportunities now for when Jeffrey Dahmer comes up. I'll go Jeffy Dahmer. It'll sound like I'm retarded or like that's the only thing I'll say like that in a conversational. It'll otherwise be normal and intelligent. I obviously have no speech impediment. But for Jeffrey Dahmer, I'll just be like, Jeffy Dahmer. Jeffy. Yeah, I remember the first time that I heard about Jeffy Dahmer. 
But anyway, I don't need to tell you Jeffy Dahmer is a piece of shit. I, I don't need to. There's no reason for me to do that because chances are you know that drugging and killing men and having intercourse with their dead bodies for days, you don't need me to tell you that's that's past the, the threshold of good and bad and it's it's the worst thing you could ever actually do. I'm going to assume that you know that. I'm going to assume that you know that Jeffrey Dahmer, Jeff, oh, who, who the fuck is that? I'm talking about Jeffy. Jeffy. Um, that Jeffy Dahmer, I'm going I'm to assume that you know that he's bad already. And same with Columbine. I'm, I'm going to assume that you know that what they did makes them bad forever. No counter argument. But then it bleeds into this thing I've noticed with true crime where people also virtue signal by saying like, did you know Ted Bundy was actually dumb? Because for many years there's been this idea that serial killers are really smart. I mean, and that's, that's equally wrong. That is wrong. Oddest tool, retarded. There have been many serial killers who are functionally retarded. You know, not all serial killers are these masterminds. So people were bullshitting when they said serial killers are all genies. They're all genies, geniuses. You know, when people, because that was a thing you, I used to hear when I first got interested in that stuff. It's just like, Ted Bundy, man, he's a genius. Ted Bundy is a fucking genius. You know, like you used to hear shit like that. And uh, I'm swearing a lot now, but uh used to hear that. And then like, so like to counteract that, you see, I noticed this. I don't know if this was going on back in the day. I don't remember this pre-internet, but in recent years, the true crime boom being what it is, being so popular, whenever I look up any kind of serial killer board or like Reddit, which is, you know, a nightmare website, a lot of the discussion is like, did you know Ted Bundy's actually dumb? Everybody says he's so smart. Everybody says serial killers are so smart. Did you know they're actually all dumb? And that's what they're doing is virtue signal. Like I can't possibly acknowledge that like any human being, some serial killers are intelligent. Some aren't, some are intelligent in different ways. You know, it's, is there's no reason to, there's actually no reason to say that serial killers are any one thing beyond the common denominator of being serial killers and some of the other patterns common to them. But as far as intelligence goes, we know that we know that varies. And you know what? I would bet most serial killers are of completely average intelligence because it's average. But the virtue signaling of being like, they're actually dumb. Like if you say anything even remotely, um, even remotely, I don't want to say flattering, but anything that could be misconstrued as flattering about a serial killer, there's this army of people out there these days who will be like, no, he's actually not. Because he's a piece of shit. He's not actually smart. I noticed that with Dennis Rader, with the BTK, 
I don't know. I don't have an opinion on his intelligence. It doesn't matter to me. Because one of the things people say is, oh, you know, like, he got caught because he was dumb. And what do you, he got caught. It's very silly. And I, I think it's funny. And it's the perfect way, perfectly humiliating way for a guy like that to get caught. Like, I think it's, I think it's really funny that Dennis Rader wrote a note to the police and was like, you can't trace it if I send you a floppy disk, right? And they're like, no. And then they traced it and found him. It's really funny that it's almost like if you ask a cop, if you ask an undercover cop, if they're a cop and they say, no, they can't arrest you. It's a version of like, that was Dennis Rader's thinking. I imagine it's like, oh, if you ask the cops, if you can trace a floppy disk and they say, no, it must be true. You know, that is silly. And it's a funny part of the BTK story. Like, I'm really glad that's how he got caught because it just makes for a good story. But people will use him and be like, you know, he's like the dumbest serial killer. Do you know he's really stupid? Because I actually find him to be one of the most interesting. Like how candid he is and like, there's a lot of truth to like when, when the BTK talks about his life as a serial killer, it's very candid. He doesn't seem to hide anything. There's probably some stuff he doesn't mention maybe, but really it doesn't seem like he's really hiding much. It's very analytical and self-aware. Like he really knows what he was and he has, and his whole private lexicon to me had a ring of truth to it. Like all the terminology he developed for what he does, some of it kind of esoteric, like he described himself as a minotaur. And when he talks about other serial killers, which he was naturally interested in, not as like a true crime buff, but just because he had a, obviously serial killers are interested in hearing about people like them. But how he refers to other serial killers is minotaurs. He's like, I read about a minotaur. Like in his book, in, there's a book I have, a woman interviewed him from prison. And I, I don't remember if it's like in his words, but he helped her write it through these coded communications. And uh, yeah, he says things like, you know, he refers to himself as a minotaur. That's, he views serial killers as minotaurs you know, this mythological creature. And he does seem to have this almost, like many of them, he has this sort of supernatural perception of what he was and why he was the way he was. And I, I find it very compelling. So when people are just like, he's actually dumb and that's it. He's not interesting. No, he's, oh, you're interested in that? It's not interesting. If you notice, that's how a lot of people communicate about things. And it's amazing we all just don't lose our minds. It really is. No, it's actually not. But anyway, like what I got going on this is just because this sort of virtue signaling that goes along with you can't say anything. Like I said, not even not even anything flattering, but basically you can't say anything that isn't derogatory about these people. Otherwise, there's this entire faction of people out there who will be like, oh, you're saying something nice about them. I mean, you see it in politics, too. It's Trumpsfeld. Like, if you say anything that isn't derogatory about Trumpsfeld, like anything even neutral, even just saying you find him funny, there's a lot of people out there who said, you know what, if nothing else, I find Trumpsfeld really funny. 
they would just hear that and be like, oh, so you love him. Oh, so uh, you're a bad person. There's a large amount of the population where it has to be something explicitly derogatory to signal to them that you are virtuous too. I mean, with, with those people, you can't even say Trump's felt funny as a carnival act. Because they'll say, like, there's nothing funny about him. There's nothing funny about Donald Trump's felt. There's nothing funny about Jeffy Dahmer. There's nothing funny about Jeffy Dahmer. But yeah, virtue signaling, it's way more universal than people realize. It's not just libs, you know, letting other libs know that they agree with them. It's really everywhere all the time. So I think like the alternative is just to state the facts and assume that whoever you're talking to is has a, a, a you know a secure enough moral compass that they understand that you're not glorifying this person. And that circles back because I wanted to talk more about Columbine. I didn't even talk about what I was originally going to talk about as usual. But with Columbine, you know, I think that kind of started the. It started both like the, the hyper focus on the killers, but it also started sort of the counter wave of you're glorifying them. You're glorifying them. You know, it also started the, the counter wave of that, which turned into like, let's talk about the victims, not the killers, which is a virtue signal. Anybody who says, let's talk about the victims, it's one thing to, to be like, let's not make it about the killer. But whenever someone's like, the victims are so interesting. Like, yeah, I think it is good. I'm not saying they shouldn't talk about who they were in their lives. After Columbine, I remember the news, you know, a decent amount of news coverage was about who these people were who got killed. And I think that's a good thing. They should be remembered. They should be talked about. But is there anybody out there who honestly finds that more interesting than them talking about Harrison Klebold? Like, is there anybody out there who's actually like, oh, you know what, like, the the high school play that Rachel Scott starred in, you know, that really is more interesting than Eric and Dylan's diaries, videos, weird view. You know, I mean, it's, it's just, you know, you're lying if you, if you say that. You're virtue signaling. And uh, so, I don't know, it's just, it's just funny. I guess what got me going on that was just... The idea that with Columbine in particular, like I remember all the victims, even if I can't recall them all off the top of my head, their names are familiar to me if I read them or hear them. Be like, oh yeah, it's a Columbine victim. But not true for the subsequent ones. Like the killers have become very forgettable. I wouldn't be able to name a single mass shooter from the last 10 years. Probably the last one was... The last one would probably be the the Batman guy in Colorado. And Colorado is a hot, but that, that part, like the Denver metropolitan area is mass shooter central. I don't know why. But yeah, I, I wouldn't really be able to recall. And like, I can barely remember the Joker Batman killer's name. I think I know it and I'm not going to say it. I'm almost positive I know it, but I barely know it. Since then, I'm just like, I don't know any of their names. And some of these have been horrifically, you know, 
they've killed like a, a, a large number of people. I guess I, I remember the uh, the what do you like the Sandy Hook guy. I'm forgetting his name right now, but I know it. That's one that I know. But, you know, I can barely remember the killer's names from the last 15 years. I wouldn't even be able to begin with the victims. There's nobody on that Columbine sort of level that I can recall from any of them. And that's even after things have shifted more to the... Uh, like, there's more of a, a vibe out there now of, like, let's not talk about the killers much. Even in the media. That kind of counterwave after Columbine of, like, don't glorify the killers. I think that has been put into place more. I don't think they talk about the killers much. Maybe the killers are less interesting. Maybe this is just more common. Maybe could be any number of reasons. But the, the reality is, though... You remember the victims more the more you know about the killers. Like one of the reasons that the Columbine victims' names are so well known is because they talked about the killers so much too. The killers are the most interesting thing. Those are what make you interested in, in hearing about Columbine. And because the killers kind of draw you in, you end up remembering the names of the victims more. It's this sick catch-22. Catch like, you can't remember the victims without remembering the killers. The killers. And, and there's people who would hate to hear that. But I would dare them to tell me I'm wrong. I dare you. Like, in a sick way, the killers have immortalized the victims. They, I mean, it's just the truth. But anyway, what I was originally going to talk about with Columbine was how that, you know, there's certain myths that go along with it. One of those was the idea that one of the girls was asked if she believed in God. She said yes, and they killed her. It was originally said about Rachel Scott, that first victim. The idea was that they put a gun to Rachel Scott's head, said, Do you believe in God? And because she said yes, they killed her. And that story was going around. Like, I was watching this stuff on the news. You know, this is 1999, so the only place that you heard about this was TV and newspapers and magazines. The internet existed, but I don't remember, at least me, my family had gotten the internet, I think. I think we had some very slow version of the internet. Yeah, we did. We had AOL. But I don't remember ever reading about Columbine online in 1999, or 2000 for that matter. You absorbed it all through mainstream media. And that idea of like Rachel Scott saying yes, like that's, I remember that story going around to the point where I never questioned it. I just, because I'm not as interested in the victims, I just never thought about it again. It sounded kind of hokey. But it was just, it was a story that was going around. It was, an ur it, was, it was an urban legend, it turned out. It was just one that was promoted heavily. And her family, I think, even wrote a book. or I think they did a lot with that. I think Rachel Scott's family really promoted that and used it for good, but also just used it. 
the idea that, that I, yeah, I think there was a, a movie even about it. But then it came out, oh no, she wasn't the one who said that. She didn't say that. She may have actually been a teenage girl who was questioning her faith, I think is what they found out. And then, and then they went with like, oh, it was this other girl. It was actually this other girl in the library who said it. They asked her if she believed in God with a gun to her, and she said yes, and they killed her. And she had changed her life and found God, and, you know, she's a martyr. It was this, this martyr idea that those girls died for their Christian faith. But, yeah, it, it came out like, oh, it was the first girl didn't say it, and then it, this new girl, oh, she said it. And multiple people, multiple witnesses said they heard a question like that get asked. But then it came out that wasn't true. came out the second girl didn't say it either. It came out the truth was there was a, a survivor, a girl who survived being shot in the library. She was screaming, oh my God, on her own. And the killers walked over to her and said, do you believe in God? And she initially said, yes or no. And then she panicked and then said the opposite. I don't remember which it was, but it was something to the effect of like, she was screaming, oh my God. So the killer sort of mockingly asked, do you actually believe in God? And she was like, no, I mean, yes. Something to that effect. And she survived too. But she was the one who actually answered that question. And it wasn't like a resolved Yes. It was she was trying it was a girl trying to find the right answer. She was trying to say the right thing to not be killed. But it turned the thing took on a life of its own, where right? I think the girls who they initially misreported said that their families wouldn't let go. At least one of their families wouldn't let go. And to this day they're like, Our daughter said that. And you can't blame them because, I mean, it's, it's a cope. You can't blame them for that. It's a coping mechanism. It's, it's something. You know, having to walk that back, it's, it's almost like the daughter got shot again. Not to be crass, but I'm just saying it's like it, in a way it almost is. It's like they now had this like perfect martyr figure. Like she died for something greater and then someone just popped it. You know, it, it, that is, it's almost like her getting killed again. But anyway, point being, that's, that's a major myth about Columbine and that was promoted so heavily, like those different stories were promoted so heavily. And this is also, you know, Bush era. You know, Columbine happened just before Bush became president. But when all this stuff was really starting to solidify was over the next few years. That's when... The books came out. That's when a lot more came out. And so the Bush era, you know, this evangelical era, those stories were really big and mainstream in a way that you don't see now. Like Christian evangelical concerns and framing were still huge then and mainstream. And you you saw them and you if you were a even remotely rebellious teenager, you rolled your eyes at that stuff. So with how big Columbine was, you can imagine how big that story was and how it wasn't just a fringe, it wasn't just a fringe group of religious fanatics who liked that stuff. It was actually front and center at that time.
But what's interesting and why I started thinking about this is there are people who get really mad about that. There are people who are obsessed with Columbine and they get angry about that myth. They get angry about everything. There's another myth that, you know, Dylan Klebold was just kind of a, a depressed follower of Eric Harris and just kind of got suckered into killing people because he was unhappy. And he was really this sympathetic figure, just this kind of dopey, smart nerd who was going to go on to great things. And his little mean, bad friend with the spiky hair lured him into this violent scheme. You know, that's, that's a story that's been promoted. And I think part of that is just like physiognomy. Like if you look at Dylan Klebold, he's very tall and thin, but he has like he's these very broad features, like this very broad, big nose, this longer, softer hair. He looks awkward and dorky. He kind of has a softer look about him, though. Whereas Eric Harris, you see photos about him, and he's just this very spiky little guy. Spiky hair, sharp features, he's little, he's thin. And I think people see that physiognomy and they're like, oh, the little spiky guy was the one who orchestrated all this and did all this. And you know, the, the full body of evidence shows that they were equal partners. The soft one was the first one to actually write about a Columbine-type fantasy in his journal. He was more unassuming. But, you know, have you heard of people have you heard of human beings you know it's, it's not all the most it's not always the most obvious person in this case obviously it was just it was you know a a doomed duo it was the classic duo of two people who you know might have done other bad things on their own but they were put together in whatever chemistry Whatever chemical reaction that was led to the result, but that's what I see. And if you look at the full evidence that's available on those guys, it's pretty obvious. But again, there's things where, you know, there's sort of a counter wave of people who are like against that narrative. And uh, they get mad though. People get mad when someone believes the myth. The idea is like, oh, you know, it, it's, it's really serious and bad and it pisses me off. And I see this with things that I'm more interested in, like mafia stuff. Like there's little trivial splitting of hairs that's a huge deal to me. Oh, you said he was from this place, not the place next door. Oh, yeah. Your credibility's gone. You'll split hairs about all kinds of little details in the bigger, not even the bigger picture, even just a slightly bigger but still small picture. They don't matter. But when you're interested in something that seems really important and you get mad about it, how oh, people always think this, but it's really this, and it, it makes me so mad when they say that other thing. You know, it, no matter what you're interested in, you feel that way.
like I've said before, it's like the chasm between two people who have near identical interests is bigger than people who have complete opposite interests. Like the canyons that can form between people. I mean, you see this with music. Like I think back about being, you know, just a mean teenager and being like, oh, I'm into this certain very specific type of metal. And you know who I hate? The people who are also into that very specific type of metal, but like the band that I think is uncool. Like, I'm going to have, you know, a, a more, I don't know, I'm going to have a deeper reaction to that than I am the person who's just like an idiot listening to Slipknot. Like, I wouldn't even think about that person. Like, thinking about in my high school. Like, there were a few people who were just Slipknot fans. I never even thought about them. I was just like, oh yeah, they're into that. I didn't cross over with them at all. I was just like, oh yeah, they're into that. Like, I, I don't have anything in common with them. I don't even think about them. It doesn't bother me. It means nothing to me that there are Slipknot fans. But you're into black metal, and like the only other kid into your, in your school is into black metal, but he likes this shitty band and doesn't like the good band. What a fucking asshole. What a fucking asshole. You fucking asshole. You know, it's like you, I mean, you know, this is an immature reaction, but it's common. I mean, I see it all the time. I see adults do it. You're into the thing that's almost the same as me, but not exactly. You're worse than my enemy. I mean, that's politics. I mean, you see that with politics, even within a political party. It's what I talk about when I say the checklist. Like, there's this checklist of things that you must believe if you're in line with the, the current state of the political party you support. And if even one of those things on the checklist is different or not checked, you may get a reaction from people who otherwise agree with you about everything that's far worse than what your enemy would think or say. Um, but I mean, you see this within any niche interest. You see this with everything. It's It's not just politics. It's not just music. It's... I've seen it with Columbine. Even the little that I pay attention to Columbine, over the years I'll periodically just like read a, a discussion about Columbine online, just for whatever reason. I can't seem to stay away forever. I can't seem to stay away. And uh, you'll see that sort of thing. Oh, you believe that, you know, he fired the gun with his left hand when he killed this victim? Do your You know, like people will flip out on each other over stuff like that. Like you're you're two of the few human beings on on this earth who like studied the ballistics tests that were publicly released after Columbine because everybody wants to know everything. You're two of the only people who obsessed over that. Whoever who even thought about which hand they used with the gun when they shot so-and-so. Like, you're, you're two of the only people on earth who have ever thought about that. And you you hate each other 
because you think he used his left hand and you think he used his right. And I'm not even making that up. You'll see stuff like that. And you also see just stuff from complete fantasy land. A few months ago, I was looking at the Columbine Reddit page. And there was a thread on there. There was something like, do you think it's possible if the Eric and Dylan might have like switched guns at some point, like and traded them back and forth? And I'm just like, your brain went there. I think about all sorts of crazy things, so I'm not judging. But still, I was like, your brain went there. You know, even though there's no forensic evidence or any other reason to ever think about that, you were sitting there late at night and you thought, I wonder if, you know, for a second, like, Eric fired Dylan's Uzi. Do you think they could have, like, swapped guns randomly just to, like, try each other's guns out? Your brain went there. You know, and, and our brain does that about all kinds of things. That's what boredom does to you. I mean, that's when you see something like that from someone, they're truly bored. But anyway, like just talking about like how things get magnified and how people have these emotional reactions. And I am getting to something bigger here, which is that it's not ever about the trivia. You know, like someone who's like, oh, are both of us have the same favorite band, but you think the first album's the best and everybody knows the second album's the best. Fucking you fucking God. You know, it's like, uh, <laughs> Batty reacted to that. But it's like, like that happens. Oh, you think that Eric killed Rachel Scott with his left hand when he, he fired the gun with his right hand? You know, like people who say shit like that, you know, even though they react emotionally to those things. Oh, you thought that she said she believed in God? It was really her. You know, like like people, they feel an emotional, like a deep-seated reaction. They're in the world in that moment. They are in the world. The world is in them. They're not of the world. They're in the world. Or the other way around. What I don't even know. I don't even fucking know which way it goes. Of the world, in the world... If you're even thinking about that, you're you're you have too much world in you right now. I have too much world in me. So I'm gonna start telling people, oh, what's going on with you today? You don't seem like you're yourself. I have too much world in me. I just got too much world in me. Too much of me in the world too. As above, so below. Got too much world in me today. And uh, to be honest, I think there's a little bit of. A little too much of me in the world. But anyway, you know, if you're having this, like, emotional reaction to that, what I've sort of realized, because, like, I do that. I mean, I react that way. Like, I'll see somebody do that about Columbine. Like, I'm making fun of people who are obsessed with Columbine and have bitter fights over which hand a guy held a gun in at this particular minute during the shooting. But then I'm doing that about all sorts of bullshit myself. I'm doing that about the things I care about. And when I'm feeling that way, it seems really important because I'm invested. And it's easy to say, like, none of that matters at all. None of the things that you get upset about, 
Like when you get upset that someone is wrong about a subject you care about, it's not really about being wrong just about that. What I've started to realize, and it's actually made me more tolerant, but what I've started to realize is like when you get upset about that in some niche little corner of the world that only you're interested in, you're really just getting upset about the fact that anything's wrong or that people lie about anything or that anybody gets anything wrong. I started to realize that it's like when someone's wrong and I'm upset about it, about something very specific, I'm like, oh, what I'm really upset about is just the fact that anybody is wrong and that there's so much of it. And I'm just fighting this uphill battle where this is just most of what you have to deal with. Most of what you have to deal with is exaggerated, editorialized, framed to add drama or melodrama to it. And so much of the history that you're aware of is a byproduct of that too. And this isn't some profound point. This is something most people figure out, I think. But uh, it's still worth saying, which is just, oh yeah, You know, I get upset about this hyper-specific thing that's wrong or that somebody's deceptive about, whatever it is, when the reality is the most upsetting thing is just how much of this there is everywhere all the time. And the reason it's everywhere all the time isn't for any one specific reason. It's just because that's how it is. That's just how it is. And the next step to that is being like, and that's okay, <laughs> which is the hardest part. And it's, it's hard on, on a specific level too. If someone's wrong about your hyper-specific interest, saying to yourself, oh, that's okay. That's fine. It's so hard to do. It's almost painful. Like going back to the mafia stuff, like I'll read things or see things that people say that I just know are flat wrong. And it's something that's so minor. It's a footnote of a footnote. And my brain's like, that has to be corrected. That's a problem. That's not fine. And how I feel about that or react to that, it makes no difference one way or the other. But uh, being able to extrapolate that out to the bigger level, there's a fancy sentence, being able to extrapolate that out to the bigger level um, is realizing like you can feel that way about everything that's wrong. Just the collective wronghood, the fallen nature of who we are and our ability to communicate it. Because it's not even stuff like that. It's people's personal stories. Like a lot of the stories you hear from people about their lives are very distorted. You'll meet somebody and you're like, oh, I'm going to learn about this person. That's what we do when we meet somebody. We learn about this person. We're going to do what we call learning about this person. And they're going to tell you stuff about their life. And a lot of times you can tell if it's truthful, if it's just facts. It's like, oh, yeah, I have three brothers and sisters. You know, I'm from this town. But when people start telling you a story, 
you're like, oh yeah, there's probably a lot about this that's wrong. It might not be an outright lie, but there very well might be any number of exaggerations that don't really matter in the long run. But if you were there, you would be able to say, oh, they, they're kind of making that up. They're kind of stretching the truth there. And then you know this person now who's new to you. And you just have to accept that what they've told you is basically true. And I've seen this happen. Like, I don't like to see people's private communications. I don't like to have my private communications read. And I don't like to see other people's. And something that I've noticed that people do, and it's not just the Zoomers. It's older people, too. Is if they have a difficult text message exchange, which is funny, how many people at any given time are having a difficult text message exchange, like a fight. Like the number of people out there, you're, there's at the dentist's office typing in their phone. They might be having an argument with somebody. They might be having a fight. And it's really bothering them because it seems really important to them at the time. But how many people like are doing that? And then there's a number of people out there, more than I've even realized, who will show you. They'll like hold their phone up to you and be like, read what he said. Read what he said. Read what she said. They'll show you a private communication between them and somebody else. They'll screen cap it and send it to you. Oh, look what she said. This. She said this. And so I, it's not like everybody I know is doing this, but a surprising number of people, and it's not any one gender, it's not any one age group, just a surprising number of people in this phone world will show you private text messages or screen cap private messages and like send them to you because they want your feedback or your opinion or just to like for you to confirm. Like I had that happen with a friend where they were like, oh, you know, so-and-so sent me this. Or no, that wasn't even that. They said like, oh, you know, so-and-so told me to totally fuck off. And I was like, really? They're like, yeah. And I was like, what'd they say? And it was like, well, they said this. And I'm like, that doesn't sound to me like they told you to fuck off. And they're like, yeah, but nobody did because this. No, I just know. I know, I know, how, I know how he talks. Oh, you wouldn't know if you, didn't, if you didn't know him. I know him, so I know that like what this means is fuck off. But you actually read the substance of what was said, and you're like, that's not what this says at all. But if that person were to like, if you hadn't seen that, you're just getting this story where it's like, oh yeah, you know, like so-and-so told them to fuck off and be like, oh man, I can't believe they said that to you. But when you actually see into what was said, you go, oh, okay. You're translating that into something else. You're turning that into a story that it, that it isn't. And people are doing that with all kinds of things that happen to them. They're conspiracy theorists. I've said that before. People are conspiracy theorists about their own lives. Well, the reason Jenny didn't invite me is because, uh, you know, she and Carol, like, talk about me and hate me. And they had a conversation where they said, like, don't invite, don't invite him to the party, you know, just don't. Like, like they imagine all these scenarios and, and some of those scenarios are real, which is one of the reasons why we worry about them. The reason why people create these conspiracy theories is because those things do happen. 
like I mentioned a story on here a few months ago, like one of two times, I think it was one of one time, one of two times, it was never more than two, where I just, I tried to guess a friend's email password. I was like, I was young. I was like, oh, this is something you can try to do. And then I guessed it on the first try. And I think why I was even wanting to see is because I felt like he was talking shit about me. And then I, I saw into his email and he was. But I never mentioned it because what I did was wrong. And I felt sick over it. I felt sick seeing into someone's private world. Even if it's at my expense. Like even if there's something in there at my expense. I felt sick about it. I mean to this day it makes my skin crawl to even admit that. But the reason you worry about people talking shit is because people talk shit. And, uh, but not everybody is. Like, not everybody is doing the thing you're worrying about. Just because sometimes people do do the thing you're worrying about doesn't mean they're always doing the thing you're worrying about. But you can easily get into a mindset where you think that's the case. And you try to come up with a an explanation for everything that happens. Because that's what conspiracy theory is. It's like, oh, here, I have an explanation for why everything is the way it is. That's what I never liked. Like, even in the old days, before conspiracy theory was a pejorative term for certain right-wing thinking, even when conspiracy theory was more just this, like, oddball thing that anybody could dig into, whether they're interested in them or find them funny, whatever it is. You know, it, it used to be, or, or like just even back then, even before it had the connotation it has today, I remember thinking like, oh yeah, this is, this is not chaotic enough. These explanations are, they fit, they, they're too, uh, this person thinks this is all designed. Even if there is conspiracy theory, there are so many moving pieces. There are so many things that can and do go wrong. None of this goes according to plan. Things very rarely go according to plan. And the way a lot of conspiracy theories were framed, and some still are, is that this was all a plan that was executed perfectly. Oh, this was a plan that was executed just perfectly. When it would be something far more chaotic than is being offered. Like even think about the big one, 9-11. The big one, 9-11. And it's like for that plan, <laughs> you, know, you get like what, 18 Muslim hijackers? You get 18 Muslim hijackers. 18 Muslim hijackers. And get them to crash planes into buildings. And it's coordinated by the President of the United States with the full participation of the CIA and all sorts of other people and all sorts of moving pieces, all kinds of variables. And the idea that, oh yeah, it went exactly according to plan. It's ridiculous. And like what, what 9-11 conspiracy theories are missing is the real aspect, which is like, what were the parts of the plan that went horribly wrong that day? And I'm not counting Flight 95 or whatever it was that got shot down or whatever happened to it. it was, they crashed it. 
the, the passengers crashed it. Like not even counting the fact that 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 one didn't crash into its target. What else went wrong? At every level, because if it was a real conspiracy, if it was a real plan, tons of things would have been going wrong at every level. It would be way more chaotic. But the reason people come up with that stuff is because they want an explanation. They want to have faith in something as part of it. Believing in an outlandish conspiracy theory, you know, it's, it's almost like you want to have faith in God. You want to think like some, somebody orchestrated this. Somebody's in control. That's what I've said before about conspiracy theories. A lot of them come down to this idea that it's actually wishful thinking. You're like, I want, I want to know that somebody's in control. Whereas the real stories behind conspiracy theories is, oh no, if this actually happened, if somebody actually did conspire in this way, it was someone trying to gain control, but it's not somebody who has total control. There's no way this plan could have gone perfectly. But we look at things and we, we kind of think of it as, oh, that was exactly how it should have been. You think about Columbine. That was something that was heavily planned, way more than a lot of these shootings since. You know, they were planning that for, I believe, over a year. And even though they were just these dorky kids who just did their best to pull off a really bold idea, to say the least, you know, they did plan it as best they could. You know, they weren't special ops army men. But for a couple, like, you know, just alternative kids into industrial rock and video games, they did a lot of planning. They really put a lot of work into that. And then what you see, though, is total chaos. The bomb didn't go off. They seem to just be killing people at random. They just kind of ended up pacing around in the library for an hour a after they killed everybody. They just stopped killing people and just kind of they walked around the school and just kind of hung out in the library and occasionally shot at police and then killed themselves. It's it, it wasn't the plan they had. And very few things end up being that plan. Even if they go well, even if they go, even if the goal is achieved, the route to that goal is way more winding and there's forks in the road and roadblocks. You know, even if the CIA was behind something, it's not going to go perfectly. But that need for, I like the idea that someone's in control. Someone's in control here. When really it's just a bunch of different hands reaching for the controls. And sometimes it gets pushed in the right direction. Sometimes it gets pushed in a horrible direction.
but reacting emotionally, I guess I was getting into, and how the way that we react to things, the way that we split hairs within our particular interests, and we personalize that and really feel our reaction. And it's easy to look at that and be like, look at that person getting upset about something minor and stupid. When really it's just, that's what, we're, we're dealing with the, the macro version of that all the time. And I found a certain peace in being like, no, I'm going to care about these things that only I care about. But I'm also going to understand that it's not that this doesn't matter, because I hate that view too. Because the opposite view sometimes is like, oh no, well like, oh, you care about this really specific thing that doesn't matter? That's funny, because nothing matters. You know, it's, it's not even that I see things that way. Like, I think that everything matters. It's not that nothing matters. Everything matters. And everything has this same problem. Problem. Everything has this same exact problem. And I, re I recognize that what I'm really upset about is just that this is possible. I'm just upset that it's possible for people to be wrong and to double down and to promote that and weave it into this melodrama that, you know, it's not really a crime. It's not really a crime to turn things into these stories or to dramatize them. Because it's not just that we do that when we turn something into a book or movie. You know, because you can see documentaries are that way. I've rewatched some documentaries that I saw when I was younger, and I'm like, wow, this was really spun into a, an emotional narrative. Way more than I remembered, but I was so used to it. Or I, I was tricked by the idea that this is a documentary. A documentary about Jeffy. I'm watching a documentary about Jeffy. Watching a documentary about Jeffrey. Jeffy. Hey, you want to come over to my house? There's this new documentary on Netflix about Jeffy. A new documentary about Jeffy. But realizing it's not just when things are presented that way, but it's also face-to-face -face someone telling you about their life. And that can be a good thing. Like, I know people who do that in a good way. Like, there's, so, there's sort of like a, a plotline-related importance that they place on just everyday people in their lives. And they use it for good. They care about people. Because, I mean, caring about people is that. Caring about people means like, oh, I'm going to assign a plot like uh, a plot line level of significance to this person. But then that can be the opposite where it's, it's like, yeah, you're assigning that level of significance to somebody, but you've warped it into this narrative about this. Oh, yeah, that was my ex and, and she did this. You know, like when my ex did this to me, you know, it it, it was it, it was kind of like this. <laughs> you know, when she said this, it was it kind of reminded me that this uh, was like this.
Like this. That's like this. And then, and then I decided to do this. And then this happened. And now there's this. <laughs> you know, listen to people. People you care about. People you like. You know, listen to me. A lot of what they're saying is that. A lot of what they're saying is this. A lot of what you're saying sounds like this. And then you, your friend tells you that, and then you respond with, oh, that sounds like this. And they say, no, but, you know, this is actually this. It's actually this. Oh, I know, but, you know, this happened to me, and when you said that, it, it kind of reminded me of this. No, but my this is is this. This is my this. This is my this. My this. That's a good one. My this. And part of that, though, it's it's almost like... I think it makes people feel like... One, there's meaning. There's an explanation. Someone or something is in control. I think that's part of why people do that. And it kind of goes back to the, you know, what I was saying earlier. I think it just makes things more interesting, too. Because you see that with people who invite, you know, everyone into their toxic spider web. Their poisonous spider web. They do actually make things more interesting. Gossip does make things more interesting. And there's a reason why our heads kind of lean forward and our ears perk up when someone shares gossip with us. Even if you're like me and you're good at pretending you don't care, when someone comes to me with some gossip, I'm like, oh. I'm like, oh, oh, I don't really care, but I'm listening. I don't, oh, I, I don't really care, but I don't really like gossip, but I'm listening. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> And I do try to tune it out, like, because I, I know it's for my own good. But deep down, when someone comes to me with some gossip, no matter how stoic and far removed I'd like to think I am and pretend I am, my ears open up a little bit and I can't control it. My ears open up a little wider than they normally would be. Did you say this? I, I think I heard you say this. And uh, you can see the dishonesty in that, though, too. You can see, like, the distortion and deception in that. It's like people are doing that with their own lives. Oh, like when my, when my magic cards disappeared in my old house, when I lived with my ex. When I lived with my ex. And remember when my magic cards disappeared? Like, I think that was, you know, my ex ripped him up and flushed him down the toilet because she was mad that I left too many dishes in the sink. I mean, it goes back to childhood, you know. I've mentioned on here many times, like that time in probably fifth grade, when my redneck friend came to me. We were having like a, a class free-for-all where we could do anything we wanted. 
probably near the end of the year or something, the teacher was just like, you guys can do anything you want for the next hour. And how these two friends of mine went to the bathroom together. Not, I don't think they were gay. 12, 11, 12-year-old boys, I don't think they were gay. But they decided to go to the bathroom together. There's something kind of conspiratorial about that. If they were older, it would be gay. But when you're 11 or 12, it's just you're, you're up to something. But how my redneck friend came to me and he's like, Eric, Eric, go to the bathroom with them. And I was like, why? And he goes, because I know they're going there to talk shit about me. This is a little boy, like a blue co- a little blue collar boy. A little blue collar boy. And he sees two friends going to the bathroom together. And his thought is, they're going there to talk shit about me. Obviously, he already has a fear that his friends are talking shit about him. Maybe they were kind of giving him, giving him hell that day. But he sees them going to the bathroom, and in his mind, it's like, they're going to talk shit about me. I need to send somebody there to confirm that. I'm going to go ask Eric to make this a three-boy bathroom trip so that he can confirm for me that I'm talking shit. It's not like he was asking me to intervene, like, oh, if they talk shit about me in the bathroom, like, stand up for me. It was just like, I want you to confirm my paranoid suspicion. I want you to confirm my story. And the truth is, if they were going to talk shit about him in the bathroom, it doesn't even matter. It's, it's not, it doesn't have to be any more part of your story. Like, when I hear that someone says something about me, I don't really hear too many bad things said about me behind my back. But once in a while, I'll hear something that somebody said about me that wasn't meant for my ears. And I can feel like my ego whisper screaming like, Oh, it's this. Oh, react to this. Because it's this. You know, I I can hear that horrible little voice telling me this matters to me. And the truth is, it doesn't have to be any more part of my story than anything else. It doesn't have to be a story any more than anything else. It can just fall flat. And you just go, oh, that, oh, someone said that about me. Okay. You don't even have to go too far the opposite direction. We're like, why would they say that about me? Because I'm a king. Oh, they were talking shit about me? Well, that's, that's stupid because everybody knows I'm a king and I grind. Everybody knows I'm a king and I grind. I'm grinding every day. They can't, nothing anybody says about me can stop me. Every time someone hates on me, I just grind a little harder and I'm a king. There's people who, the number of people who do that. You don't even have to do that. Oh, someone said something. Someone said something. Might not be the thing I wanted to hear, but good information. That's how, oh, interesting. That's good and interesting information for me to, to hear. But if I didn't hear it, that's good and interesting too. They said this. I'm back on the, the this train. My this.
So I'm going to name my boat. People come up with interesting names for their boats. Someone's going to walk by a boat someday. It's going to be my boat. And it's going to be called my this. Or just this. If I name my boat just this, I hire a painter to write that on the side of the boat. A boat painter. A boat name painter. A boat name painter. I'm going to hire a boat name painter to write this. I like my this, though. I like my this. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. So take.